Uh, I've never met an investor that falls in love with their ETFs, but I'm sure they're <laughs> out there too. Hello and welcome to the debut episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we're going to help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and for the last seven or eight years, I've been writing about index investing on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com, and in magazines such as Money Sense. And I'm really excited to be able to move beyond the printed page and the computer screen and connect with investors through this podcast. Now, those of you who've been following my writing will know I'm also an investment advisor with PWL Capital in Toronto, where my colleagues and I manage ETF portfolios for our clients using the same strategies that I write about. So in this inaugural podcast, I thought I'd share the story about how I made the transition from being a financial writer to a full-time investment advisor. And then I want to discuss my evolving views about the decision to invest on your own or with the help of a professional. And I'm going to do that in conversation with my colleague, Justin Bender. Now, I think that Justin and I are in a unique position to consider this question of DIY versus working with an advisor because we manage portfolios professionally, but we've also worked really closely with well over 100 do-it-yourselfers through our DIY investor service, which is something we launched about five years ago. And we've seen just how successful people can be when they get the right help at the beginning of the process and if they've got a genuine interest in managing their own money. But at the same time, we've also seen how things can go wrong when DIYers lack the commitment or the discipline to invest on their own. So before we get to my conversation with Justin, I just want to give you a little bit of a background. The DIY service was actually launched by Justin and his colleague and now his wife, Shannon Bender. Um, It was a charitable initiative that they uh, created around the Christmas time in 2011. Their goal was just to offer this service to four clients. And instead of accepting a fee, they just asked the client to make a donation to a charity that they supported. So they contacted me at the time. I I had known Justin through the blog, but I had no affiliation with PWL. Uh, And they just asked me to promote the service. I thought it sounded like a great idea. So I wrote a blog about it. And uh, they got a lot of response and I later followed up just to see how things went. And Justin explained to me that the service had been really successful, clients loved it. And I thought, you know, this would be a great idea for a magazine feature. And as it happens at the time, I was actually the uh, acting editor-in-chief at MoneySense. This was in the spring of 2012. And so I wrote an article for MoneySense called Renovate Your Portfolio. And the article just profiled uh, three of the four families that they had worked with. And it described the process that Justin and Shannon had followed to rebuild their portfolios with low-cost ETFs. So that article turned out to be very popular with readers. And a lot of readers of MoneySense ended up calling Justin and Shannon to say, is this service still available? Because if it is, I'd like to hire you. So they got enough response that they decided just to make it an ongoing offering. And sometime after that, sometime in, in 2012, Uh, they contacted me and they said, you know, have you ever thought about becoming an advisor rather than just writing about this? Maybe you could come work with us and we could, we could do this kind of thing together. And at first I thought, what are you crazy? Why would I want to be an investment advisor? I'd spent so much of my career as a financial writer, encouraging people to fire their advisors and invest on their own. But the more I talked to, to Justin and Shannon and the more I you know, understood that the investment strategy that they recommended was so closely aligned with the one that I had been promoting. I thought it would be a great fit. And I really thought this idea of being able to work with 
individuals uh, directly rather than just, you know, through writing about it was really appealing. And so all of which just to say that the DIY service was really a major factor in my decision to join PWL and become an investment advisor. And since that time, we've worked with well over 100 families. Now, we've since discontinued the service so we can focus on our full service clients. But the DIY service really was uh, different from a typical service that you might get from a flat fee financial planner because it also included investment advice. And that's an important distinction. A lot of planners are not licensed to give specific investment advice. So what we did was for a one-time fee of $2,500, we put together a basic financial plan that included a risk assessment, a savings strategies, retirement projections, and things like that. And then we actually helped the clients open accounts at a discount brokerage of their choice, and we helped them to transfer their existing assets there. So some of them were working with an, uh, an investment advisor. They had their funds tied up in mutual funds or some other kind of securities. Um, some of them were already doing DIY and just uh, you know knew that they were in over their heads. So once we did that, we then designed a, a custom ETF or index fund portfolio for the client. And then we didn't just you know, give them the plan, we actually walked them through all of the trades. So we either had them come into the office and sat with them at the computer and did it together, or we did it via web conferencing software when they were um, outside of the Toronto area. And I think people found that part of the process really valuable, especially if they'd had no experience investing on their own. Once they had the portfolio implemented, we created a custom rebalancing spreadsheet for them so they could use it to manage the portfolio going forward. And I think we did everything we could to set up these clients to succeed uh, once they left us. You know, it took about two or three months typically, in some cases even longer, uh, to get everything set up. We coached them through every step and uh, really set them up to succeed. So running this DIY program while we were also working with full service clients gave us some real insight into who was likely to succeed when managing their own portfolio and who is probably better off getting professional help. So we've been kind of on both sides of the fence. And that's the theme of my discussion with Justin today. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, so I'm here with my friend and colleague, Justin Bender, and thought we would take some time to reflect on the DIY service that uh, we offered here at PWL for the last few years. Um, Justin, I can remember when we first discussed launching this service. This would have been back in uh, early 2012. 2012, oh, 2012 we yeah. did the uh, the charitable initiative, and then I think we made it kind of a permanent service offering around sometime in 2012. And I can remember uh, we announced it on my blog and elsewhere, and there were a number of comments on some online forums and comments in the blog where people basically said, why would anybody pay for a service like this? I think at the time <laughs> yeah. it was about $2,500. Um, and people said, you know, why would anybody pay that kind of fee when there are sites like mine, you know, that had model portfolios that people could simply follow and uh, and build a portfolio on their own? So what do you make of that reaction? Yeah, so I think there were no better options available at the time. Most people were paying advisors an ongoing fee of sometimes up to 1.25% plus tax. Uh, and they were paying it consistently every year, each year. So paying a, a one-time hit of 2,500 to have same kind of expertise, some financial planning as well, actually seemed like a pretty good deal. Now, we uh, discontinued the service at the beginning of 2016 with 
you know, except for a, a few sort of one-off things that we'll do for special circumstances. Mm-hmm. But as you know, we continue to get a fair bit of inquiries about the service and the demand. Why do you think a demand for a service like this continues to exist? Yeah, I think people are still interested and intrigued with uh, the low cost of investing that you can do at discount brokerages. They continue to look for other ways to save money. And especially as their portfolio grows, the the cost each year becomes bigger and bigger. And uh, they're just not really seeing value in traditional advisors anymore. And uh, I really can't blame them with uh, most of the ones I see out there. Now, one of the things that uh, we had set a limit on when we were taking on DIY clients was portfolio size. So we set the cap at uh, $500,000. So Mm -hmm. any portfolio larger than that, we said, wasn't eligible for the DIY service. Do you want to talk a little bit about why we set that limit? Yeah, we we definitely broke that rule. It was uh, fairly arbitrary. It was more based on uh, trying to avoid complex situations that we just thought we might be doing uh, a disservice to the investor. So generally, uh, the service worked best for RSP accounts, uh, TFSA accounts, RESP accounts, instead of uh, personal taxable accounts or even corporate uh, taxable accounts. So with that 500000 generally um, investors below that amount wouldn't have those types of accounts. So it was a bit arbitrary, but we took on ones that were, you know, 600,000 of just RSPs and TFSAs, uh, relatively straightforward situations. So it was more to kind of stop the uh, the larger accounts from coming in that were generally taxable. Yeah. So let's talk about that because clearly the $500,000 limit was arbitrary, but let's talk a little bit about the specific characteristics that might make a portfolio not appropriate for a DIY model. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, there are certain do-it-yourself investors that will read all the articles that uh, we've published, um, things about tracking your adjusted cost base uh, for taxable investments. Uh, They'll read the ones on tax loss selling and implement a strategy like that. They'll pay attention to uh, the implications of rebalancing and realizing capital gains in taxable accounts as well. But the majority of them won't. Um, They get more confused with those types of those types of topics. Um, so we just found that it was easier to give investors that had uh, just RSP TFSA accounts the knowledge that they required to manage the portfolio on an ongoing basis. Um, and if it was more complicated, we weren't really doing our job. Yeah, would you think? I think it's fair to say as well that uh, it's easier for a good advisor to add value in a taxable portfolio than it is in a tax-sheltered one, just simply because you have more tools at your disposal. Yeah, I'd say it's uh, easier for a good advisor, um, easier for a bad advisor too, to detract value with uh, taxable accounts as well. Um, And there's always the benefit of management fee deductions and taxable accounts. So if you can find a good advisor that's doing uh, like a passive investment approach is charging very low fees. Uh, most of your investments are taxable investments. You know the case for getting someone to professionally manage it is a lot more appealing. Um, it's less so if you have TFSA and RSP accounts where you can't deduct a fee, or uh, at least it's generally not deductible each year. Um, the benefits and the price is usually more expensive too. So you're paying one percent plus HST or one point two five percent starts getting up pretty expensive where a do-it-yourself approach might be better. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's generally agreed that um, 
you know, managing an RSP or TFSA account is going to be a lot less complicated. Um, how does a, a corporation fit into the picture? I know we, we, we get a lot of inquiries from people who um, maybe they're doctors or they're other professionals. Um, they do a lot of their saving and investing in a corporation. Um, how do you feel about DIY investing in a corp? Yeah, it's uh, again, there's a lot of information that we've uh, posted online that can help with um, that type of management. But they have to be more careful with, uh, you know, foreign income. I should say foreign dividend income in corporate accounts can be more tax inefficient than, say, holding in personal non-registered accounts. Um, There's issues with tax loss selling uh, that you can mess up for the accountants uh, if they're planning to pay out CDA balances. Um, There's issues with uh, fixed income within corporate accounts, as there is with non-registered accounts too, where it can be terribly tax inefficient if you pick the wrong products. So it's not saying that you know a do-it-yourself investor shouldn't try to invest within a corporation. They have to be a bit more careful though. Yeah, there's just a lot more to know and the sure. cost of mistakes is probably uh, higher than it might be. From a dollar point of view generally if they have large corporations, yeah. Okay. Wanted to talk a little bit about the types of products that we used uh, in the DIY service. Mm-hmm. Um, we build it mostly as a uh, service to help you build an ETF portfolio. And mm-hmm. I think for the vast majority of uh, clients that we worked with, it was ETFs. Yeah. But occasionally we did use uh, TD's E-series funds as well. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what went into that decision? What made the E-series funds more appropriate for uh, for some investors? For sure. So the TD E-series funds are very similar to ETFs, at least broad market ETFs. Uh, they're a bit more expensive, which is why some investors just want nothing to do with them. But you're looking at a 0.44% fee for a balanced TD account compared to a 0.14% fee for uh, an ETF portfolio. So it's about a 0.3% difference. The benefits of it is it's super simple to set up. Um, you don't have to do much math. Really, it's just adding and subtracting. There's no uh, multiplying or dividing in most cases to figure out what amount of shares you need. There's no commissions to um, to actually purchase the funds or sell them. Uh, and you can place the trades even if you have to. If you're a busy uh, professional or busy employee, you can place them after work and just let them actually fill the next day. Whereas ETFs, you want to place them during the trading day. Some people can't pull themselves away, uh, myself included. I find I'll buy TD series funds at home after my uh, – after I've been working here, placing ETF trades for all our clients, uh, I just don't have time to look at my own accounts. Yeah, I, I, and I think another situation where it might be appropriate would be people who are making monthly contributions. For sure. Um, people, uh, you can set up an automatic monthly contribution and a monthly purchase plan with uh, mutual funds that you can't do with uh, ETFs. So a little bit lower maintenance for people who, as you say, don't want to be involved in there during the trading day. Absolutely. Just check it maybe once every year. Uh, probably won't even need to be rebalanced. Um, and then you'll just set it and forget it for the next year. One of the really interesting uh, ways that the the service evolved uh, was the portfolios we recommended to clients became simpler. And uh, I think this was really interesting because it mirrored our own approach. Um, Certainly when I started here at PWL, uh, a lot of the portfolios that we used with our managed clients were more complicated than they are today, Uh, more asset classes, more individual holdings. 
and with the DIY service, it was sort of the same thing. We had real estate investment trusts. Yep. We had some U.S. listed funds. Um, and then over the couple of years that we started to do it, based on the feedback we got from clients, we started to make the portfolio is a little more simple. Can you describe a little bit about how that came yeah, about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're human as well. We make uh, mistakes along the way. We um, overestimate how much uh, some do-it-yourselfers are willing to take on. Uh, so some of the accounts we started out with, let's say they had an RSP account. Uh, we had done a lot of research about foreign withholding taxes and how it was better to hold US-listed ETFs within those accounts. So we'd show the uh, investors how to implement a strategy called Norbert's Gambit to actually convert currency very cheaply within the RSP account. It's a terrifying strategy to actually implement for a do-it-yourself investor. Uh, they'd be very excited at first to implement it. After we were done it, they just looked terrified and scared uh, to ever do it again. Mm -hmm. So we learned after a little while that it was generally not a good idea for most do-it-yourselfers to try to save money that way. Uh, they're already saving a huge amount by not having advisor fees. We didn't want them uh, messing up their portfolio after we had left them because we had made it too complicated to manage. So going forward, we started uh, recommending more Canadian uh, listed ETFs. Uh, we tried to be as tax efficient as possible, but while still trying to keep things as simple as possible to uh, rebalance, to add new cash to, and to hopefully not have to implement a, a Norbert's Gambit. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there is, uh, well, I, I think in, in so many uh, aspects of investing, there's this balance between optimization and just what they call satisficing. You know, the <laughs> idea is finding something that is not perfect, but is good enough. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly I've found working with a lot of clients that you know, we would just give them the choice. And yep. in many cases, I would show them two or three portfolio proposals and say, well, look, this one's the cheapest, but this one's the easiest. And the difference in cost, and you'd work it out, like you said, if it's sort of 10 basis points, I mean, it's $10 a year per $10,000 invested. It's a pretty small amount of money. And a lot of people without hesitation said, I would be more than happy to pay a modestly higher fee to make this much easier. Well, you and I get that all the time with our model ETF portfolios. Your portfolios have three ETFs, much simpler than my portfolios that have five ETFs. Um, they're basically the same thing and they're almost identical in cost. And yet a lot of investors will contact me and say they like mine better than yours <laughs> because they include emerging markets or they have more diversification when really yours include emerging markets as well. It's just hidden. It's yeah. just hidden. Exactly. So... Really, I, I usually recommend when someone has you know, a more modest-sized portfolio to just use three funds to start things off. Yeah, I think we all of us just as human beings are kind of hardwired to resist simple solutions. Mm -hmm. And we think that more complicated must mean more sophisticated and therefore superior. Mm -hmm. And it takes a little bit of experience and insight to realize sometimes simple is the best. Absolutely. Right. Now, some of the challenges that we experienced with the DIY service and, and the clients were some technical ones, like we talked about. For example, they were uh, clients were a little bit nervous about certain types of trades or transactions, mm -hmm. uh, understandably so. But some of the other challenges that we experienced and that we had to learn from were the behavioral challenges. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. What are, were some of the most uh, recurrent behavioral problems we saw with, with various clients? We had uh, a lot of investors that didn't want to sell their individual stocks, uh, even though we made it you know, very clear that our service was about 
you know, dumping all those types of active portfolios and implementing uh, just a very simple uh, passive portfolio for them to manage. So they fell in love with their stocks. Um, I've never met an investor that falls in love with their ETFs, but I'm sure they're <laughs> out there too. Uh, that was a big one. Uh, cash balances were always a big issue. So even if we implemented a portfolio for a client, you know, six months later, they'd make their $25,000 RSP contribution and it'd just sit there. They wouldn't rebalance the portfolio. They wouldn't implement the funds. Even though we had shown them how to place trades, how to use a rebalancing table, they would try to time the market still. They would think that uh, the stock markets were going to plummet. So they'd wait uh, until they hit the bottom, wherever that is. Mm -hmm. uh, so that became an issue as well uh, that we saw. They'd call us up and uh, six months later and we'd see the cash sitting in the account. Um, another thing after the portfolio was implemented, we'd see six months later, they'd come back and say they wanted to do a rebalance. All of a sudden, they'd have individual stocks in their <laughs> accounts. They'd have, you know, water ETFs or, I don't know, silver ETFs or things <laughs> like that uh, just throughout the account in no rhyme or reason. So they had just completely destroyed the portfolio we set up for them in less than, you know, six months. Yeah, it's really interesting that, um, you know, sometimes we talk about it. it's important to monitor your portfolio and keep on top of it. And, you know, that's true. But in some ways, if the portfolio is set up properly, a little bit of benign neglect is not such a bad thing. And I think, you know, people came back to us a year later and say, you know what, I haven't even looked at the portfolio since you guys set it up. We'd say, that's probably pretty good. I mean, unless there's a real dramatic market move that required a rebalance, you know, leaving your portfolio alone for a year is not yeah. the worst thing you could do. Yeah, so I would agree with that. And even with uh, the robo-advisors that are coming out now, it's a very appealing, uh, very appealing service to just even have someone that's going to reinvest cash balances for you, your new contributions, and you not have to worry about that. Okay, the last question I wanted to ask you, Justin, is a little bit about how um, the market has changed. When I say the market, I don't mean the stock market. I mean the investment marketplace has evolved since we um, launched the DIY service. I think the biggest change on the scene has been the appearance of robo-advisors or online services that will set up and maintain an ETF portfolio for you. Mm -hmm. um, with the appearance of firms like this, you know, how, how would that affect? I mean, if we were still offering the DIY service today, do you think there would still be a market for it with the appearance of these kinds of firms? I would say for sure. I mean, it really comes down to that ongoing fee that if a client is looking for the lowest cost possible, uh, do-it-yourself is definitely the lowest cost. Uh, Robo-advisors are still charging between you know, 0 0.35%, 0.5% on the portfolio, plus underlying fees that are usually even more expensive than the model ETF portfolios that we recommend to clients. So there's still significant cost savings to paying a one-time lump sum fee and then pay an extremely low fee ongoing. So Justin, we dis uh, discussed that we no longer offer the DIY service conventionally, but I think you and I would both agree that we're still very committed to helping DIY investors and we're doing that through our blogs and articles and white papers. Uh, but tell us a little bit about uh, the initiative you're working on now. Yeah, so uh, you and I definitely felt uh, a little guilty about not being able to continue the do-it-yourself service and, and continue to help these investors out. Uh, so we decided that we're going to set up a YouTube channel and uh, actually put tutorials online on how to implement uh, an ETF portfolio, how to rebalance a portfolio, 
um, you know, annually or on occasion. Also, for those individuals that want to get a bit more complex, we're going to have things about converting currency at your favorite uh, big bank brokerage, um, how to purchase U.S. listed ETFs, how to track adjusted cost bases, how to tax loss sell, all those things that get a bit more complicated. Over time, we're going to show investors how to do that. So you can uh, view the webpage at uh, youtube.com slash CPM. Great. Thanks a lot, Justin. And now it's time for Bad Investment Advice. In this segment of the podcast, we're going to take a swing at some of the dumb ideas that get floated around in the financial media. So my goal here isn't to take cheap shots at journalists or news outlets. I mean, let's remember I was a journalist for 20 years. I made a living doing it. I'm well aware of the pressure that is on journalists to crank out new material. But I also think it's important for investors to understand that a lot of what people hear or read in the media is actually really harmful to them because it can serve to shake their confidence and some of it is just flat out wrong. So today I want to talk about an article that appeared in the venerable Wall Street Journal. This was an article called One Place Where Passive Investing Doesn't Rule, Bonds. The article is actually part of an otherwise pretty good series in the journal called The Passivists, which is about the growing trend in index investing. But this specific article argues that while actively managed equity funds are losing a ton of assets to index funds and ETFs, actively managed bond funds are actually seeing positive inflows. Now that might be true, but I take issue with the reasons proposed in the article. Um, The authors suggest that the growth is because active managers have more opportunities to beat the indexes in bonds than they do in stocks. And they offer a few arguments in support of that idea. So the first reason that they suggest is that because bonds don't trade on an exchange, it's easier for active bond managers to find underpriced securities and beat their benchmarks that way. So that's compared to, say, equity fund managers who are trading in large Public, uh, publicly traded companies where those companies have to disclose all of the important information. So it's very different uh, or very difficult rather to find inefficiencies. The second reason that they offer is that bond indexes, because they contain so many bonds that are often hard to find, they're illiquid or infrequently traded, um, that those bond indexes are therefore harder to replicate than stock indexes. And that presumably makes bond ETFs less efficient. Then the third reason that they offer uh, is cost. So actively managed bond funds are generally cheaper than actively managed equity funds, whereas the opposite seems to be true in the ETF world. For some reason, uh, ETF equity ETFs are actually cheaper on average than bond ETFs. So it might make sense that you know you can get a bit more of an edge by paying a little bit more to get an actively managed bond fund rather than a lot more to get an actively managed equity fund. Now, there's a grain of truth in all three of those points, but I think we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that the bond market is somehow this terribly inefficient marketplace and that clever managers can just go in there and easily outsmart each other and identify mispriced bonds. Because it's true that the formulas used for pricing bonds are definitely complex, but they're also pretty transparent and they're consistent. So they're based on the bond's coupon or its interest payments, its term to maturity, its credit risk, and a few other factors. And any opportunity that a bond manager might find to identify a mispricing is likely to be really modest. 
right? Now compare that to say a, a small cap stock fund where you might find a 10 bagger. You know, a, a bond manager might be lucky to get 10 basis points on a trade. At the end of the day, there's really only two ways for an actively managed bond fund uh, to outperform. So the first one is just to take more risk. So that means loading up on bonds with lower credit ratings and correspondingly higher yields. So I would say a traditional bond ETF these days holds somewhere between 60% and 80% in government bonds and the rest in corporate bonds. And usually even those corporate bonds, you know, they carry a bit more risk, but they're still investment grade, which means that they're, uh, they're still relatively safe. An active bond fund might just allocate more to corporate bonds. And they might even go so far as to buy junk bonds, which might deliver higher returns, but only with significantly more risk. So that's not really outperformance if you're simply taking additional risk and you're being compensated for it. The second way a bond manager can outperform is just by guessing right on interest rates. You know, these days, again, a broad-based bond index fund has an average maturity of about 10 years or so. And if you want to, you can pick up a short-term bond ETF or a longer-term bond ETF. But the point is, is that the ETF is always going to hold bonds of that same targeted maturity. There's no discretion for the manager to go in there and change it. An active bond fund is quite different. So if the manager believes that interest rates are going to fall, she's going to shift her portfolio to longer-term bonds because the longer maturity of a bond, the more it's going to rise in price if interest rates decline. And vice versa is also true as well. So if you're forecasting rising rates, you're going to move to short-term bonds. And if you're right, your bond fund is going to outperform the benchmark. And if you're wrong, it's going to lag. But an honest bond manager is going to likely admit, at least over a drink or two, that they have zero ability to predict the movements of interest rates. Nobody can predict the movement of interest rates. And if you didn't believe that before, surely you believe it after the last several years where just about everyone has been predicting rising rates since about 2009 and rates continue to tick down. So if a bond fund manager is right, usually they've just guessed and now they're taking credit for correctly calling a coin flip. So is active management really better for bonds than it is for stocks? I mean, absolutely not. If you want to take more risk, just look at index ETFs that focus more on corporate bonds or even high yield junk bonds if you really want to. And if you want to shift your portfolio between longer or shorter bonds because you're making a call on interest rates, you can do that with ETFs too. Now, I don't recommend either of those strategies, but my point here is that if you're going to take additional risk or if you're going to bet on a coin flip, you might as well do it cheaply rather than paying somebody else a high fee to do it for you. By the way, the Wall Street Journal article included the following statistics. So this is a quote, roughly 37% of U.S. taxable bond mutual funds tracked by Morningstar have outperformed their benchmarks over five years through August, compared with just 16.5% of actively managed U.S. stock funds. So I think there's your answer right there. If you use an actively managed bond fund, your odds of outperforming were about one in three. Now, I guess that's better than one in seven, which is what it was for stocks, but I think it would be better to just make your odds two out of three by using a bond index fund. So the idea that you should ditch your bond index fund and hire an active manager is really just bad investment advice. 
Even though I'm an avid consumer of terrible advice, there's really only so much I can find on my own. So if you've heard or read some financial advice that really stinks, I hope you'll let me know at mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. Send it to me and I'll do my best to make sure that everyone else ignores it. So this segment of the podcast is what we're calling Ask the Spud. And this is your chance as a listener or as a reader of my blog to send me a question and I'll answer it on the air. So joining me for this segment is my colleague at the PWL Toronto office, Amanda DL. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right. So we get a lot of mail and uh, email every uh, week with various questions about investing. So Amanda, what, uh, what did you find in the mailbag this time? All right. So today's question is from Walter in Toronto and he writes, Dear Dan, I have enjoyed reading your insights for just over a year now on your Canadian Couch Potato blog, as well as in Money Sense and Canadian Money Saver magazine. I use your ETF model portfolios, and I have a question. The equity component of the Couch Potato portfolio is split one-third Canadian, one-third U.S., and one-third international. Why is the Canadian component so high when Canada makes up only 3% of the world market cap and with poor sector diversification at that? This is a question I get pretty frequently, and it's a good one because as Walter points out, Canada makes up only about 3%, maybe 4% of the global equity market. And yet the model portfolios on my blog are about 33% Canadian equities. So a lot of people just think this is you know, rampant home bias, and to some extent they're right. Um, but here's why I think an equal split between Canada, the US, and international stocks is actually a good starting point for a portfolio. The first one is lower volatility. Uh, Justin actually ran the data on this going back to 1988. And he found that when you combined Canadian, US, and international stocks in a balanced portfolio, the least volatile mix was actually one that was roughly one-third Canada. Now, that number is going to vary over time. So there's no optimal number, uh, at least not one that you can know in advance. But other research uh, I've seen has suggested that the least risky portfolio tends to be somewhere between 20% and 40% in Canadian stocks. So a smaller allocation like 3% is actually going to be more volatile. The second reason which is related is less currency risk. Now, you want to have some foreign currency in your portfolio because it does add an extra layer of diversification. But you're probably getting enough if two-thirds of your equities are in U.S. and overseas currencies. So it might be fine to keep 97% of your equities in non-Canadian companies in theory. But if I'm spending Canadian dollars and I plan on doing so right through my retirement, I probably don't want 97% of my equity portfolio to be denominated in foreign currencies. This is just a matter of matching your assets to your liabilities. A third reason is cost. Uh, Canadian equities generally have lower fees than foreign equity ETFs. Maybe not so much those uh, holding U.S. stocks, but uh, they're certainly cheaper than international and emerging markets. Uh, A fourth reason is tax efficiency. Uh, Dividends from Canadian stocks are taxed much more favorably than foreign dividends, especially if you're in a low tax bracket. So if a lot of your portfolio is in non-registered accounts, and especially if you have corporate accounts, it really can make a lot of sense to be overweighted in Canadian equities. And even in RSPs and TFSAs, uh, U.S. and international dividends are subject to foreign withholding taxes. That can be a drag on returns as well. And then the fifth reason is behavior. Um, 
Canadians just naturally hear and read more about the Canadian economy and about our own domestic stock market. And that can't help but affect our attitudes about investing. So during any time when Canadian stocks are outperforming the rest of the world, and that was the case from about 2002 through 2011, almost nobody ever asked me that question. I mean, I can remember at the time people asked me why I recommended only one third in Canada. So things really change. I mean, when Canada was in the doghouse uh, during the last five years or so, uh, then all of a sudden people wanted to be 97% global. So I've always liked the consistency and the discipline of just holding equal amounts in all three regions and then just simply rebalancing when necessary. So there you go, Amanda. Thanks, Dan. And Walter, I hope that answers your question. For all of you listening, if you've got an investing question that you would like answered on a future installment of Ask the Spud, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. Dan responds to all of his emails personally. And if your question has broad appeal, he may answer it on an upcoming podcast. All right, that's going to do it for the very first Canadian Couch Potato podcast. Thanks for listening. We're going to create a new episode every two weeks or so, so please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast service so you never miss an episode. In our next podcast, we're going to feature financial planner Sandy Martin, and we've got a number of other great guests lined up for the future, so stay tuned. In the meantime, check out my blog at CanadianCouchPotato.com. I'm Dan Bordelotti. See you next time.